Today's scripture is Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 28 through 31. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of the Lord, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have uh, knowledge and understanding, join their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Liz. Appreciate you. That chapter 10 began with about three paragraphs of names that I spared you from reading. It's good to be back in the United States with your fancy 24-hour electricity and flush toilets and data plans and traffic laws and all these kinds of things. Uh, Thank you all for praying for me while I was gone. Uh, if, you, uh, if you don't know, I spent uh, eight days in Liberia, West Africa. My brother passed away, and I went back home to bury him. Uh, if you have a family member or know anyone that works for a certain airline, I need to talk to you. Uh, I missed the funeral because of the airline. Uh, spent 36 hours in Newark and a night in Paris. By the time I got to Liberia, the funeral had uh, was done. So the purpose of my trip uh, was sort of incomplete. But I did have a great time with my family, and I got a chance to say my goodbyes to my brother personally. Uh, I did get an email on Tuesday a couple of days ago that my bags have arrived in Monrovia. <laughs> what a trip, right? <laughs> yeah, my bags got to Monrovia on Tuesday, and I was in Tucson. Uh, well, God does everything for a reason. I am grateful that I was able to go home and, and share the gospel with a few people and talk to a few people and express my love and, con and, and just condolences with my nieces and nephews. I have so many, and they have started to have kids, so... It's a huge family that we have. So thank you for your prayers. I am grateful uh, to be back. I would open in a word of prayer so that we can get into the word of God, which is why we are here. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day that you have made. Uh, we pray that um, we will rejoice and be glad in it. I thank you for the rainy season that you brought from Africa to here. Um, we are grateful for it. Uh, the greenery that has sprung up around our city. Uh, I pray that the word of God springs up in our heart 
just like the green that has sprung up around our state and city. Lord, as we go into your word now, I pray that you would give me just a clarity of thought and an expression so that folks can hear things from your word that they perhaps have pla- you've placed on their hearts. I pray that every heart here will be fertile ground for the, the word to sprout forth. I thank you for where you have us in this city, in this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Before I get going, I always like to tell you, and I will never, ever not stop telling you, hopefully, that James chapter 3, verse 1, uh, says to me and every preacher that occupies this pulpit and any pulpit in the world, that we will be held more accountable um, for the job that we do here. To preach the word of God is to be accountable to God. James 3, verse 1 says, I, we will be judged more strictly. So the next 30 minutes, what I'm going to do, I will be judged before God for. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, I am in Nehemiah chapter 10 that Liz so dutifully uh, read. Liz, thank you very much again. Uh, The book of Nehemiah is where we've been this summer and we'll close out uh, pretty soon. I don't know about you, but um, when I was a kid, I'm sure some of you have done this. Maybe all of you have done this. some version of this story I'm going to tell took place when between you and a friend, you decided to make an oath or a commitment or an agreement between each other. Uh, you, in America, they call it a pinky swear, where you put your hands together and you make an agreement with someone either it's a friendship oath or an oath to, to keep a secret or to do something uh, of that sort, an accountability. So you pinky swear. Some people took it another level where they would kind of cut themselves and do the blood thing. I wasn't into that. But the pinky swear. The pinky swear is is sort of a covenant between two friends. We have covenants and agreements all around us. All of us are in multiple covenants, multiple agreements around our, our country, around in our personal lives. We've made commitments to people. People have made commitments to us. In multiple, if you think about marriage, marriage is a covenant. If you think about on a lower level, if you think about like a mortgage, that's also something you sign, right? You make an agreement, we'll pay you this amount, you allow us to stay in this house for this long, right? Triple A, I don't know if you have triple A, but that's also an agreement that I'm going to pay you this amount of money every year, and if I'm on I-10 one day and I'm stranded, you'll come get me. Life insurance, you give them a certain amount of money, and at some point, if something happens to you, God forbid, and you pass away, your family is taken care of. All these things are agreements, but God, in the Old Testament, made covenants, which are divine agreements, with human beings. In Nehemiah chapter 10, the people that God has brought out of exile back to Jerusalem have just finished actually reading the Word of God for the first time in maybe a generation, 70 years. So they're sitting in Nehemiah chapter 8, and Ezra, the, the priest actually described, reads the Bible to them, and they understand that, oh man, God has actually given us this covenant that we have failed to keep. We haven't kept our end of the bargain. And it, it, as they're reading, the people begin to feel some type of way about themselves. As, 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 as Ezra is reading, and, and they realize we are not in good standing with God. So let's make it right. Let's do something. 
so that we can get in good graces with God. If you've been there, if, 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 I don't know if you've been to a church meeting or youth meeting or something, and somebody reads the word of God and it hits you and you realize, man, I want to do something. Like, I want to give back. I, 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 have, I have fallen short of what God is doing. This is the point of this narrative. When people are caught, people are caught in this atmosphere of kind of revival as a nation. They want to do something. They've heard the word of God. It's almost like the first time this happens in the Bible, it happens in the book of Exodus, when the people of Israel come out of, out of Egypt being slaves, and God makes a promise to them, and he gives them this covenant, what we call the Ten Commandments, and they get read, and the people said, well, we're going to start to live for God. Now, in the verses that Liz read, I'm going to focus on three portions of what they wanted to keep. One, they wanted to keep the fact that God had told them not to marry anyone from specific nations outside of Israel. Two, the Sabbath laws that God told them to keep to honor, to honor God and rest. And three is the, the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee. I'll explain. Let me read uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 30. The people said, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring goods or any grain on the Sabbath to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Throughout the Bible, like I said, God made covenants with men. Uh, men being mankind. The Israelite people, these covenants were all conditional. Conditional covenant, meaning that you were accountable to do one part of it, and God was accountable to do something in response to that. So all these covenants were conditional. So, for example, when, when, when God washed over the earth with the flood, and Noah, when the flood, when the flood ended, God made a covenant with Noah that, that symbolized by the rainbow to say, I will never destroy the earth with water again. The second covenant God made was with Abraham. When he said, Abraham, if you obey me, your children will be as numerous as the stars right? If you obey, I will do this. The third was with David. David, if you do this, your lineage, you will have Jesus, the, the king, the Messiah will come through your lineage. The covenant that the people are focusing on here, however, is what's called the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses, the Ten Commandments, right? It, God said, you people are a holy nation, a nation of priests. If you do this, if you keep these commandments, you, if you, you will be my treasured people. You will be what I want, the people who I favor over all the earth. Now, what did the covenant do for the people of Israel? What did the law actually say? The people, after hearing the word of God read, and like I said, in these covenants, they want to get back in right standing. Their response to God is, man, God, we want to do something for you. We want to be, these, we want to be this blessed people that you have made. We'll do better. So the first part of this covenant is, is the portion of what, what, what the people are talking about, what, what we call intermarriage. Now, whenever I read this, I, I get a little, I don't know if you get a little way in your heart that God doesn't want the Israelites to intermarry with other people. Is God being a racist in this situation? Well, that's the question I initially asked myself. 
But then if you want to trace this back, if you want to go back, go back to Leviticus chapter 7. God gave them specific nations that they were not to marry, to intermarry with. The reason being quite simple. It was not a racial thing. It was actually a religious thing. Because those nations, God, God said, do not marry these people. Because if you marry them, they will lead your sons and daughters away from me. They will start to worship other gods. They will have idols. They would do pagan things. So do not marry. It wasn't every nation around them. It was specific nations around them. So when God makes this, when God makes this, this, this kind of this offer to them not to marry, they didn't, they didn't obey because when they went back to Babylon, they married all these people. So they brought, they brought foreigners that they were not supposed to marry. They brought them with them. By the way, this is where we get the, um, the call now not to marry outside of the Christian family. You follow me? Because if you marry, if you say you're a Christian and you marry someone who is not a Christian, this is where that comes from. You're marrying someone outside of, Christian, of the Christian family that could lead you to worship other things. You follow what I'm saying? Okay? So at that point, it was national, but now it is by faith. You understand? You don't become, <laughs> I wrote this, you don't become a Christian through marriage, but through obedience. The Sabbath. This marks, the second part of it is the Sabbath. This marks that the people wanted to make a promise to God to say, we're not going to do business on one day of the week. We're going to rest because you said you would do this for us. If we rested, you would take care of us. The Sabbath is not to restrict you from making money. The Sabbath is actually to help you rest so that you can trust God in everything that he does. It's an act of trust when you observe a Sabbath. I'm not asking for a show of hands. Hope you're, <laughs> do you observe the Sabbath? The only person or people that I know uh, that observe the Sabbath nationally is Chick-fil-A, right? The Sabbath is a radical practice that separates us as Christians from everyone else. It was the goal that God was setting for his people through the Jewish lineage and now is extended to us to practice the Sabbath, to rest and trust God to, to, to do what he can do when we rest. The third thing was the year of Jubilee. Now, this one is, this is why I'm going to get on your couch a little bit. I hope it's okay. Um, this was a radical socioeconomic, um, socioeconomic reset, if you will. If you read Leviticus chapter 25, God lays out what the people of Israel should have done in what is called the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was was, was an act, a year that was conducted every 50 years. So after, when the 49th year came, they were, when they counted, when the 49th year came, when it got to the 50th year, everything in society was to be reset. Meaning, we would return property that we had bought or benefited from in the 50th year. You, if your family owned property, you had to return it to whoever it was. Everyone went back to where they came from. Imagine going back to your hometown, the house you grew up in. It was a complete societal reset. Imagine everything that you've ever earned, that you've ever had, you had to give up and give back to the original owners. It would be like giving up power 
right? Economic main means you would start over every 50 years. And the people say, you know what? We're going to do this. They're making this promise to God that we want to do this. We want to get a reset so we can get on with life. So let's do it. But their, self their selfishness wouldn't allow it. I want you to imagine something. Imagine, let's say this year is the 49th year in Tucson, in the United States. Next year is the 50th year. All that you have, whatever you have in your savings account, whatever you have in your 401k, whatever second house or third house, or in my case, the private jet, I'm just kidding. Uh, whatever you, <laughs> I'm glad you guys got that. <laughs> whatever you have, you gave back. Imagine Visa and MasterCard canceling your debt. I don't know where your student loans are. Mine are with Sally Mae. Imagine Sally Mae letting me go free next year. Imagine returning, giving up everything that you've worked for for the last 40 or 30 or whatever years you've given it back. There will be no such thing as generational wealth. They did this so that people who were poor, people who had suffered, made bad business investments, or had a terminal illness that they couldn't afford, you understand that they could, they could be reset. So every impoverished Jewish person looked forward to the year of Jubilee, right? Do, do, do you have something in your stomach? If, I know when I started reading this, I had something in my stomach like, man, I would have to give up quite a bit if I wanted to reset. They never did it. From the book of Leviticus all the way to Malachi in the Old Testament, there is not one recorded instance in years and years past they never did it. You know why they never did it? Same reason why you and I are feeling some kind of way inside. If I have to give it up, I can't do it, right? They never, ever did it. But in this case, in Nehemiah, they said, hey, we want to try it, right? We want to do it. We're going to try to do it. God's word doesn't uh, return to them void. They never did the year of Jubilee on their own. So here's what God did. From the moment they got to the promised land in the book of Joshua to the point where they went into exile was 490 years. 49 times, where's my mathematician's here? It's not that 49 times 10 is what? Oh man, so, are we awake here? 49, 490 years, they never ever did a year of Jubilee. They go into exile for 70 years. Do the math. God makes the land that they were on rest for 70 years because they hadn't done it for 490 years. You follow me? This is not, this is not typical hard math here, right? They didn't do it. God, for, 40, for, 10, for 10 generations, they didn't do it, and God silenced them for 70 years, and they, they did it. The reason why they didn't do it is because the human heart just doesn't allow us to want to share, to want to give. We are sinful and selfish, and we lack trust in God. That's the reason we hoard, right? We want to depend on other things rather than God. That's why it's hard for us to, 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 to celebrate and, and live in the Sabbath, because we feel like we're missing something. We need to keep working, especially in our culture. So what does this covenant mean for us? What does it mean for us? What do we need? What can we take from this? 
In our society now, I would argue that we engage in covenants because we gain something in return. We perform in covenants so that because we know the other party holds us accountable to the things that we do. There is a reward for every covenant that we have. We benefit from, from, from the covenants, that we, the agreements that we get into. There's always a benefit for us. We love performance-based agreements or covenants. I know when I was in school, I knew that the, the unwritten rule, or the, not even unwritten, the written rule is if I studied, I did well, I got an A, I fill out a paper, the teacher's going to reward me with something. Either it's a college scholarship or good grades or a GPA. There is something, there's an interaction there, right? School, good behavior. If I behave well, I will get something because we can control, to an extent, the outcome. We have a balance of power and we have control. We have, we have, we have leverage. So many human agreements and covenants, however, fail. Despite our full efforts to hold each other accountable, we often step through and fail. Our society is fraught with poor, poor, poor covenants. Today I'm speaking, let me just speak to believers at this point. If you're not a believer, this doesn't include you, but it includes all of us as believers. Marriage. What has happened to that covenant? By the way, it's not just in the United States. It's, it's worldwide. Where I came from, people are getting divorced more than they ever have before. Um, the marriage covenant is not a performance-based covenant. It, 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 it should be an unconditional covenant in, in most cases. Um, the church. Can we talk about that? We are in church. Church membership, people argue, is down. I see people leaving churches, even though they've become members or they, they've made a vow to be in this church or serve in this community, but someone upsets them, they walk away and they go down the street. All the, uh, the next church down the street has the smoke machine and a better kids' ministry, so we leave. The pastor says something I didn't agree with, so we leave because the performance of the other person does not meet my expectations, so I walk away. There's a mistrust in society and in institutions because we don't want to rely on others and be in a covenant that we cannot control. We want covenants we can control because it makes us comfortable. We know exactly what we need to give up and exactly what's going to come back to us. We often do this when we approach God, by the way, which doesn't work. When we approach God with the idea that he will, will do something for him and he will guarantee do something for us, that is not how God works. How many of you have made a promise to God before in a, in a, in a, in a, in a hasty situation? God, if you get me out of this jam, oh man, I, I promise you. I, anybody pray this prayer? Is it just me? Maybe it's just me. I promise you, Lord, I'm going to do this. I, I remember one time I was in some kind of jail. I don't know what it was. I, was. I was 19 years old. Forgive me, right? I said, God, if you do this for me, I'm going to throw away all these rap CDs that I have. I'm going to get rid of all this stuff, right? I promise you, I will be in church. I will be in the front row, all that kind of stuff. Because when I was 19, God forgive me, I, I, when I went to church, it, I was, I, it was so hard for me to focus. But then when something happened, when I needed, when I, when I filled out college applications and I needed a response, I'm there praying 24-7, oh yes, Lord, I give my life, oh, I promise you, right? 
That's immature. Right? A lot of us operate in that way with God. This is what's happening in this passage. They're throwing everything to God and saying, God, we, you have done so much. We will do this. We will do the Sabbath. We will do the year of Jubilee. We won't intermarry. Here it is. Take it. And in reality, what they really need, what they really want, is a Savior. They need somebody to make the connection between a holy God and their unholy life. They're, they're operating on a works-based situation when God is, God is, offering, God is offering a faith-based situation. You with me? They want to hold God accountable. They want, they want to work so that God can give them something. We are sinful beings and we cannot ever hold up our end of the bargain. We will always fall short of the gospel. We will always fall short of God's holiness. Because you and I cannot live a sinless life. We'll always fall short. That's why laws have a hard time. You understand? That's why people have a hard time with law. We can make as many laws as we want, but we, the, the, the people who want to violate laws are always one step ahead or one step behind. Human beings, when left to our own selves, we won't devise ways to become, more or le- become less morally accountable first. We tend to fall away. More laws, God realizes, aren't the ultimate answer. If God is holy, and he demands righteousness, and we as people can't possibly be sinless, how do we enter into a relationship with God? I'm going to read that question again. If God is holy, and he demands righteousness, and we as people can't possibly be sinless, how can we enter into a relationship with God? It's a lost call. So why are you sitting here today? If that equation is true, that we are sinful and God is holy and there's no way to connect it, why are you here? How do you become righteous in the eyes of God? It's a desperate situation if you think about it. We sit here, we are all followers, we're intrigued, we, we pursue God and God has made a way. For me as a sinner to come to a holy God and feel like I can step into the presence and he will still look at me even though I am a sinner. We can do this because there is a new covenant. A new covenant that God made with man. And this covenant is through Jesus Christ. If you know this, on the right side of your Bible, whenever you open it, the last third of the right side of your Bible is what we call the New Testament. A testament, another word for a testament, is a covenant. So the Old Testament represents all of the old covenants. When you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you get to the New Testament, you get to a new covenant. Here's what that new covenant entails. Here's what it is. The New Testament or the New Covenant introduces us to a mediator that can, that can bridge the gap between our sinful nature and God's sinlessness. The New Covenant 
presents us with a central focus. It presents us with a new subject. It presents us with a reconciler. And that reconciler, that person who is bridging the gap, his name is Jesus Christ. He comes to fulfill both the covenant that God had with Noah, that God had with Abraham, that God had with David, that God had with the people of Israel. He comes to fulfill all of that. He takes on the punishment that we should receive as sinners. He becomes the sacrificial lamb. See, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, when you sin, you had to kill, a, you had to kill an animal to bring yourself clean. Jesus is that animal in the New Covenant. Jesus welcomes you and I into God's family that you don't have to be Jewish to get into. That's part of the new covenant. That's why you're seated here. You are adopted by God's grace, through, God's grace through your faith. The love covenant that God gives here is not conditional like everything else. It is unconditional. Meaning, there's nothing you can do to get closer. He has already done it. Unconditional. It's hard for us to fathom because we're so used to the performance base. I do something, God gives me this. This one is different. Jesus is both the initiator of this covenant and the fulfiller of this covenant. Meaning, meaning he started, he reached down to us. Right? All we, all our part we have to play is so that we believe in Jesus Christ and whatever gifts and whatever benefits, whatever he has, comes to us and we cannot earn it. Jesus is taking control of, of, of our situation because man, as us, cannot live up to our end of the bargain, not through, not through anything. We sin over and over and over and over and over again. We promise we will do right, then we fall. Through Jesus, however, the Father is both the initiator and the fulfiller of this new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, way back in the Old Covenant, man, the Bible is so good. This is like hundreds of years before Jesus comes. The prophet Jeremiah says he realizes that these covenants aren't working and God's going to give us a new covenant. If you're a Bible scholar, write this one down. Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jesus, God, real, God realizes that these covenants that he's making with man, the cycle is still the same. People will sin, they will confess, and they will do it again. Same thing we do. We sin, we confess, we promise we'll do better, we'll do it again. Jesus says, I will step in. The Father says, what if I give a way for you to be in my presence without a sacrifice, a loving covenant, an unconditional one? Would you accept? It's my question to you today. If God were to approach you with an unconditional covenant that says, 
I will love you for the rest of your life. You will, you will be as kingdom come on earth. And I will, you can entrust your eternal destiny to me unconditionally. Would you accept? This is why some people have a real difficulty with Christianity. Sometimes when I sit and talk to folks who are atheists, um, will say to me, it seems there are two problems with Christianity when we get down to it, right? It seems too easy for some, and then it's too restrictive for others. This new covenant seems too easy. You mean I can, I can do whatever, and God's it's unconditional? Like, I'm just going to, I can just believe and say I believe, or confess my sins, and then go about doing my own thing again? Or it's full of all kinds of rules that I have to follow, right? It's too easy. Let me start with that. Because it's not performance-based, people have a hard time wrapping their heads around it. I don't have to do anything. See, other religious paths around this world, believe me, I know a bunch of them. I just came from a place that has a bunch of them, right? Other religious paths wrongly offer works-based salvation that will bring you closer to God if you do X, Y, and Z. If you give alms, if you care for the poor, if you sacrifice this, if you do this. You know what that does? You know what the performance-based salvation model does to you and I? It increases our anxiety level. It makes us work. It makes us think the more we work, the closer we get to God. If your salvation, believe me, if your salvation depended on how hard you worked, you shouldn't be sitting down right now. You hear what I'm saying? You, you wouldn't have a chance to sleep. As many sins as we commit, if your salvation depended on how hard you worked, you shouldn't be seated. The anxiety of trying to work your way to God seems to me is, is absurd. Your eternal destiny does not depend on your performance. It depends on what Jesus has already done, and he's already done it. The other option that atheists tell me is that there are too many rules to follow in Christianity. This is a covenant, by the way. The new covenant is a covenant of the heart. That's the beauty of it. You don't have to be an eye servant with God. You know what an eye servant is? If you don't know what an eye servant is, man, I'm speaking Librarian. This is Librarian English here. An eye servant is someone, is a kid who does right when their parents are looking. That's an eye servant. You know the, you know the kid who pretends, right? Like, oh, everything's done. I'm working hard. When your parent leaves, you start doing something else. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth and have a depth of understanding on how bad your situation with God, you can't be an eye servant. He is just so loving towards you that you want to be loving towards him. You're willing to give up everything and anything to serve the Lord, even if he's looking or not. By the way, he's always looking. You can't be an eye servant with God. This is why I fell in love with the Bible. This is why I fell in love with Jesus. Because it is the wildest story of passion and pursuit. I can't sing. But there's a song that Casting Crown used to sing. Don't worry, I, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> the song, the lyrics go like this. Hey, you will probably start singing it in your head. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name and care to feel my hurt? Who am I? You know that song? I'm not going to sing. Who am I that God will make a covenant, a sinner like me, 
to, to, to have the ability to be in the presence of a holy God. Who am I? After hearing the word of God in the book of Nehemiah, the people say they want to do all of these things. The fact is, in a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, you'll see by the end of the book, they're doing the same things over again, even though they made the promises. My question is, if you've, you've heard the gospel, you've heard the good news, how will you respond this evening or this morning? Will you respond with a hasty vow? God, I'm going to throw away all my CDs. Here it is. Or will you rest that through faith, through God's grace, that you have an inheritance that cannot be taken away from you? Jesus is offering eternal life and the kingdom that is already here. You cannot lose it. You can only enjoy it. If you truly understand it, you don't take advantage of it. You submit to it. You cannot go on willingly sinning once you become indwelled with the Holy Spirit. That's the answer. The answer to the people who say it's too easy or it's too many rules. Once you understand it and the depth of understanding is in your heart, you cannot willfully go on sinning. You become a new creation and there are no conditions attached. Amen. It is not performance-based. You cannot outwork your neighbor to get to heaven. God loves you so much more. God the Father has initiated a covenant with you and I, and here is your invitation. If you never heard the gospel before, here it is. Jesus came, gave us a new covenant that if you believe, you will spend eternity with him. And that's not all. If you believe, thy kingdom come, your life on earth will be different. How will you respond today? We are under a new covenant because we have a relationship with God. So I close this evening. I was sitting in a family meeting last Sunday with my brother's kids, his wife, and everybody else. And because my father has kids, um, some of them are not with his wife. We're all sitting in the room. He had nine, by the way. And there's about 30 people in the room. And his wife says to me, he says, by the way, they don't call me. I'm going to give you guys a name that they call me. <laughs> they don't call me Marcus in Liberia. If you go looking for Marcus in Liberia, you won't find him. You'll find Jungle Boy, however. So they say, Jungle Boy. His wife said to me, he said, Jungle Boy, these kids don't respect me. And so my love for them would depend on them respecting me. That's conditional. You understand? What we're looking for, what God gives us, is a love even though we are yet sinners. We can still come to him. You understand? It's unconditional. There's no bad behavior that will drive you so far away from God that he cannot pull him in that he cannot pull you from. You understand? God's love is unconditional and it's waiting for you. If you haven't heard that before, this is the first time you've heard it, please stay and don't leave without talking to Dave, Keith, Jake, or myself. Amen? Bow your heads. Thank you, Father God, for your word. I pray that a heart heard clearly what you have as a true gift 
and unconditional love for us all here today. Heavenly Father, I pray a great blessing on those who are here this evening and those who are watching tomorrow morning. Will you bless their lives and carry them on? In Jesus' name, amen.